Okay, good evening, Chag Sameach, happy Hanukkah. We are, what's this? We did four tonight, right? Losing track already. All right, I'm getting old. Night number four. Um, and we will make sure to tie in our class to Hanukkah. And it will tie in very, very directly and naturally. It won't be a stretch. Um, but we are continuing to talk about the patriarchs and matriarchs. And I'm going to continue to discuss Yaakov, Jacob, tonight. And uh, we're going to follow him a little bit more on his journey. So we left off last week, and Yaakov was in the house of Lavan. We actually focused primarily on two, two episodes last week. One was Yaakov and his encounter with the shepherds at the well. And secondly, the relationship between Rachel and Leah and the kindness that Rachel bestowed upon Leah. Um, so we're gonna fast forward a little bit and Yaakov builds up a family. He builds up great wealth in the house of Lavan eventually, of his uncle Lavan. And then he, it's time for him to leave. He leaves. Okay, all kinds of things that, that occur throughout that episode. <coughs> We're picking up um, where he has now left the house of Lavan. He's traveling back to the land of Israel. His, his uncle Lavan lived in um, Haran, which is outside of Israel. He's now returning to the land of Israel. And, uh, and he hears that his brother Esau, who last off had wanted him dead, is not too far away. So that's where we're going to pick up. And uh, if you have the source sheet, you can follow. Otherwise, you can listen. So in chapter 32, it says that Yaakov sent messengers to Esau. Um, and that's where verse 7 picks up. It says the angels or the messengers. I, I would translate that messengers. The Hebrew word is um, Malachim. So there's a question if it was Malachim like angels or Malachim like messengers. The most simple understanding is just messengers, but this translation that I took apparently translated as angels, preferred that. Anyway, so the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother to Esau and he is also coming toward you and 400 men are with him. So Esau is approaching with a large army of 400 men. And if you know, if someone knows that his last off his brother wanted him dead, and now his brother is coming with 400 men, then that is quite a frightening predicament. And indeed, the verse says in verse eight, Jacob became very frightened and was distressed. So he divided the people who were with him and the fox and the cattle and the camels into two camps. So he took all of his people and all his possessions, and he divided into two separate camps. And he said, if Esau comes to one camp and strikes it down, the remaining camp will escape. And, uh, and the truth is that, as we've mentioned in the past, all of these events are, are symbolic of the future events as well. And this has been, you know, provided protection for the Jewish people throughout our history is being spread out, has actually been to our advantage, where uh, if we are attacked and terrorized in one place and, uh, and, you know, worse and killed and, you know, but there's 
choosing other places that carry the carry on the torch. So this was Yaakov's plan of how to deal with Esav and is also a you know something that has been effective for us with the descendants of, of Esav. So, so anyways, we're gonna skip the Rashi for now. Let's just go on to verse 10. And now, so after he divide, he says, well, he said he's going to divide the camp. Um, sorry, no, he did divide it in verse eight. He said he divided the people. And then in verse 10, it says, and Jacob said, um, oh, God of my father, um, Abraham and God of my father, Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your land and to your birthplace, and I will do good for you. Now deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him, lest he come and strike me and strike a mother with children. So he's worried that Esau is going to strike him. He prays to God. This is a prayer, right? Oh, God, my father, you know, God, my father, etc. Deliver me from the hand of my brother. And you said, he says to God, God, you said, I will surely do good with you. And I will make your seed as numerous as the sand of the sea. Sagara. Okay. So he prays. So he, uh, he divides the camp and then he prays. And then in verse 14, it says, so he lodged there on that night and he took from what came into his hand, a gift for his brother Asaph. Now he prepares a gift. 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 nursing camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 she-donkeys, and 10 he-donkeys. So uh, many, many uh, animals to give as a gift to his brother Asaph to attempt to appease him. And he gave them to the messengers. Actually, we're going to fast forward here to verse 21. And you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. This is the messengers who are going to bring the gifts to Asaph. And uh, for he said, this is, was his plan. I will appease his anger with the gift that is going before me. And afterwards, I will see his face. Perhaps he will favor me. So the gift passed on before him and he lodged that night in the camp. So he sends off messengers with gifts for Esau. So we see that Jacob does three things. Number one, he um, divides his camp. Number two, he prays. And number three, he sends a gift to Esau to try to appease him. So let's look at back to verse nine and look at Rashi. So Rashi says, um, he, Jacob, prepared himself for three things, for a gift, meaning he prepared a gift, for war and for prayer. For a gift, as scripture says, so the gift passed on before him, that last verse 22 that we just read. For prayer, as it says in verse 10, God of my father Avram, and for war, as scripture says, the remaining camp will escape. So he divided them up, you know, and, and that was a preparation for war. So anything seem a little bit strange about this Rashi? Anything strike you? You know, Rashi is very careful about his words and how he says things and what order he says things in. So it's kind of interesting that Rashi tells you the three things that Ace, that Yaakov prepared for, and he starts with the last thing, right? Verse 22, um, he prepared with a gift. And then he tells you that he prepared for prayer, and he tells him, you that he prepared for war. So this is not the order that he said, he, that, that, uh, that it appears in the, in the verses. It's not how it appeared. First, we had that he divided the camp prepared for war. Then 
we had that he prayed, and then we had that he sent the gifts. It's also not the order of how things played out, which was, you know, he never actually ended up needing to go to war. So that, you know, that doesn't play out either. So, you know, it could have been, you, you could have chosen the order of how things played out and said, you know, first he prayed, then he gave the gift and he prepared for war, but that never ended up happening. But Rashi doesn't choose that order either. So he doesn't choose the order that, that it's presented in the verses. He doesn't choose the order of how it actually, how it plays out. Instead, he says he, that he prepared three things. Number one, for he prepared a gift. Number two, prayer. And number three, he prepared for war. So why does Rashi choose to present it in this order? So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky gives a beautiful explanation. He says that, that really what Rashi is telling you is the order of preference of how of, of what would be the best, the best approach. Now, practically, it didn't necessarily happen in this order, but in terms of the preference for what, what should work. So the ideal, actually, you know, you might think the ideal is, you know, you're in trouble, you pray, and, uh, and God saves you. And that would be first, you know, put, put that on the top of the list, prayer. But actually, what Rashi is showing us is that idea, the ideal here is that he makes peace with his brother Esau. That's the ideal here, that he, he sends a gift to try to make shalom, to make peace between him and his brother. And that's what comes first. That's, that's why Rashi puts that first. Now, if along with that, he's going to pray. He's going to pray that, that the gift should be accepted and that he should be successful in that. And then, you know, third, last would be if it comes to it, then he also prepared for battle. That's obviously the last, uh, last, the worst case scenario that he's preparing for. And that's placed last. And it doesn't actually play out. He never does do battle with, with Asav. So what, he, what, 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 what Rashi is teaching us is something very important, which is sometimes we might think, especially with relationships, um, you know, I'll pray. I'll pray that, that things improve. And we should certainly pray for our relationships to improve. And, uh, and we know we, part of the, of the daily prayer is to pray for, for peace of all of Israel. And the person could pray for peace in their own relationships when they pray that prayer. Part of prayers are, is, is helping us deal with, uh, with our struggles so we can pray for improved relationships. But also we have to make our own, uh, our own efforts and in, in improving those relationships. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what Yaakov does over here. And the ideal is for that to work out in that manner, for it to play out that, that indeed he makes peace with his brother. And, uh, and, and, and the prayer is, is, is to support that he should, that God should assist him in that, should just see it through, should see that his efforts are successful. But, uh, but again, the ideal is that, 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 that peace should be made and not just that God saves him or, or uh, you know, from his brother. That's, that's part of the prayer. He should save him. But, but, but the best way to be saved here would actually be through, through making peace. So that's, uh, that's one, one thing that, that comes out of this. In general, what, what we see from this is, is the three-pronged approach for future generations of how to, you know, how to approach challenging situations. There's the there's always the you know prayer 
is 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 essential. And then there's also the the, the efforts that we put in. So when dealing with uh, with certainly with with uh, you know foreign power with with powers like ASA or something like that. So we have to both prepare for battle and we have to also attempt gifts and and to appease and uh, but but. And that all comes with prayer. So we do we put in our efforts. We do what 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 we think we need to do to to bring success or to bring peace. And and we also put in uh, we also put in our prayers um, that uh, that God should assist those those efforts. And the, again, this the 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 experience that that Yaakov goes through here is something that's pre preparatory for future generations as well. That uh, throughout our history, we've had to resort to similar similar uh, strategies in dealing with our uh, with our enemies or with those uh, who had held power over us in the various countries that we've been in. Okay, so that's that's the first the first little episode here. That's his preparation. Now, now while he's waiting for Asav to actually show up, we have a another episode and that continues actually in the very next verse so verse 23 i put a little space because it's a new 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 discussion really so it says and he arose during that night and he took his two wives and his two maidservants and his 11 children and he crossed the ford of the yabok so he crosses this this river this ford and he took them and brought them across the stream and he took across what was his so he brought out his possessions. He brought his family across the stream. So he's basically trying to, to run away, it seems. Um, and then it says, and Yaakov was left alone. He was left livado, alone. And the man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. And that's a whole episode in itself. The wrestling with, it's, it's, it's an angel. It's an angel of Esau. It's its own discussion, which we're not going to get into tonight. Um, but uh, but there this 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 is what happens. Yaakov sends he helps his family cross the stream. He um, he brings all his stuff across, or almost all his stuff it seems. And then it says that he remained alone on the other side. He remained alone, and then he was attacked by this by this angel of Asaph. Now why did he remain alone? How did he end up alone? So Rashi tells us, really quoting the Talmud. And he had forgotten small bottles, small jugs, and returned for them. He had to go back for some jugs. What was, what were these jugs? Were they, were they empty? Were they full? Did they have water? Did they have oil? Not so clear. It doesn't, doesn't tell us. But, uh, but he went back for these jugs. So one other com great com medieval commentator, Rabbi Bachya, does have a suggestion about this. And he understands that they had water in them. And they needed water. He went back because he needed water. So he says as follows. He says, first of all, where does this come from that he went back for a jug? Doesn't say that anywhere. Just says he was alone. Why do we think he went back for, for, his, for bottles, for jugs? So Rabbein Obachia explains that it comes from the word livado. Livado means alone. But the vase is very similar to a chaf. Levado is very similar to lechado, and a chad or a kad is a jug. So he says that, that, that that's where the sages are coming from. The Talmud is coming from to, to, 
to, or that's where it's hinted to at least, that he actually went back for jugs. So Rabbeinu Bachya, it's still in, in, on verse 25 there, on the source sheet, he says, the rabbis taught to also read it lechado, meaning he went back for jugs in order that the young children should not be endangered from not drinking on the way. Therefore, he put himself in danger. Now, it's dangerous going back by yourself. He goes back, and indeed, he gets attacked by this, this man or this angel. But why did, what, what, what made it worth it? Why did he go back? So he says very simply, they needed, they needed water. They, they brought all their stuff across, but they had left their jugs of water. He went back for water. Okay. That, uh, that's what we would call simple, what we call pshat, the, the surface layer understanding of this, uh, of this episode. But we can dig a little bit deeper than that. And uh, let's read together the source in the Talmud for this idea. And then we'll have to you know, try to figure out what it, what it means because it says some interesting things. So it's source number two. It's the last source for today, actually, already. Um, and, uh, and the Talmud says as follows. The verse states, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Fine. Rabbi Elazar says, the reason he remained alone was that he remained to collect some small pictures that had been left behind. Like we said, he went back for some pictures, some jugs. And then the Talmud comments something very strange. From here it is derived that the possessions of the righteous are dearer to them than their bodies. The possessions of tzaddikim, the possessions of the righteous are chaviv, are more dear to them than their bodies. Now that, based on everything that I've ever learned about Judaism, is a very strange statement because we always teach that possessions are not important, it's temporal. What you amass in this world is, is, you know, it's not about the pursuit of material wealth. So, you know, to say that the possessions of the righteous are more dear to them than their bodies, really? That's so important, his, his jugs, like he cares, he can't miss, a, miss even his jugs, everything, you know, he, Money is so important to him, but possessions are so important to him. What is that? Why? What does that mean? Now, to further complicate it, it goes on and it says, and why do they care so much about their possessions? It is because they do not stretch out their hands to partake of stolen property. Because the righteous, they don't steal. So therefore, their possessions are very valuable to them. Everyone else who steals, so they don't care so much about their possessions. But because the righteous don't steal, they care very much about their possessions. It's very confusing to me. I don't really know what this is, what this is supposed to mean. Um, so we'll have to try to try to figure that out together. So uh, so let's start on the most uh, um, the most simple simple level. So Rabbi Chaim Friedlander, he says very very simply. He says. Uh, he understands that what the Talmud is saying here is that you know why the, you know why the possessions of a, of, a, of a righteous person are so dear to him because he's worried that if he doesn't he's, he's worried that if he doesn't have them he might steal. That's what it means. It means that you know why it's so dear to us because why it's so dear to the righteous because the righteous don't steal. 
and they they're and and therefore every possession is so dear to them because otherwise they might be tempted to steal. That's a little bit strange because I thought this is they're the righteous. The righteous are tempted to steal. So he so he says he says that it's a you know how do we understand that? We Yaakov he's worried that he's going to steal. He needs his jugs because otherwise he might try to rip some off of someone else. Really? And the answer is yes. He is worried about that because the greater a person is, the more worried they are, the more concerned they are that they might come to sin. Somebody who's less righteous says, yeah, it's fine. I'm not going to be tempted. It's not, you know, nothing can tempt me. But somebody who realizes the gravity of a sin it seems like a simple thing you know it's not the biggest deal but somebody who recognizes the gravity of such an act is very concerned that they might come to do such a thing and therefore they take all the steps necessary to make sure that doesn't happen rabbi yisrael salanter the great musr leader the sort of the founder of the musr movement he was once at the home of a wealthy person uh, collecting, collecting for his yeshiva. And he sat down to meet with this wealthy person and this, this rich man pulled out his, uh, his safe, his, his, his coffer, and he opened it up. He was about to, to pick out a donation to give to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And before he had a chance to do it, he was, somebody called him from the other room and he said, excuse me, I just have to go to the other room for a moment. And he left this, this safe, this coffer open on the table. So a second later, he sees, the rich man sees Rabbi Yisrael Salanter is out in the hallway with him. And he said, what are you doing? I thought I told you to wait inside. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said that, uh, that I, I can't, I'm, I'm concerned that if I, that, that, that if I stay inside with that open, open safe, that I might come to take from it. Now, this was Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. This was the founder of the Muslim movement. This was someone who had complete control every, over every action, every emotion. He was not going to steal from it. But the greater a person is, the more they realize the gravity of the slightest, the slightest wrong, the slightest wrong move. You know, when, we, when we're, we're walking in our lives before the king of kings, the, the master of the universe, so our actions make a difference. They're important. And the, right, the greater a person is, the more that they realize that. Every, every act, every move, every word is significant. And, and every sin is, 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 is so grave. You know, when I, when I teach Jewish law, halacha, so halacha is very complicated because there's biblical law and then there's rabbinic law. And the rabbis put layer upon layer sort of a protection of the biblical law. So the truth is that keeping Shabbos on a biblical level is actually pretty simple. There's, there's, there's plenty of things a person could do that transgress a biblical prohibition of Shabbos, but, but the rabbinic prohibitions just like make it much, much more complicated. And, and, and there's way more rabbinic you know, law than, than biblical law. So there's like protection upon protection so that a person doesn't come to transgress a biblical commandment. And, uh, and when, I, when I teach, you know, I, I, I tell people that 
the, 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 the reason, you know, sometimes it seems like, why do the rabbis say you can't do this? Like, I'm really going to come, if I do this, then I'm going to either, I'm going to come to do the biblical prohibition. Like, come on, it's such, it's such a far, you know, it seems so far-fetched to imagine that, uh, that I'll give you an example. You know, it says one of the, one of the, one of the laws of Shabbos is you can't, you can't harvest on Shabbos. So you can't pick a fruit off a tree. You can't break a stick off a tree. The rabbi said, you're not allowed to ride a horse on Shabbos. Now that's not actual, there's no actual prohibition of riding a horse on Shabbos. The rabbis invented a rabbinic prohibition. The concern was if, you will, if you'll ride the horse, you might rip a stick off a tree to, to, to use as a, as a whip for the horse. It seems a little bit you know, far-fetched that somebody might do that. Like, why do they, but, but I think the idea for, 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 for me, it seems that way. But that comes from a lack of appreciation of the severity of the biblical prohibition. The rabbis, the sages appreciated how serious that it is to, you know, to, to transgress a, a biblical prohibition. And therefore, they put layers and layers of protection. So, so similarly, it's a, I think it's a similar idea to what we're, we're saying now. The, uh, the, this, the Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he appreciated what it means to steal how severe that is, how serious that is. And therefore he was like, I don't want anything to do with this. If there's an open safe box here, I'm in the hallway, you know, because I, I don't want anything to do with this. You know, another example of this in Jewish law is the laws of Yichud. We have laws that, uh, that, that limit a, a man and a woman who are not married or, you know, in certain, situ- certain relationships from being alone together because you know, things happen. And while uh, you might say, well, that person's so righteous, you know, like, why are they concerned about the laws of Yichud? Why are they keeping those laws and not secluding themselves with someone? They're not going to do anything. But again, an appreciation for the severity also uh, of, 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 of these prohibitions lends itself to, to more care about it and, and to not be, become secluded with, with someone who is forbidden to them. So that's just another example of that. So that was that was the story with Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and says Rabbi Chaim Friedlander that that's also what's going on in this passage in the Talmud. On the most basic level, Yaakov, he, he, he makes sure to go back for his jugs. Why? Says the Talmud. Because uh, uh, a righteous person, every possession is so valuable to them because they don't steal. Meaning they are concerned that if they are lacking, they might be tempted to steal. And therefore, whatever they have is important to that, to, that they keep so that they never be tempted to steal. Yaakov, if he didn't have his, his jugs, whatever they were, empty, water, oil, I don't know, whatever they were, if he didn't have them, he was concerned that maybe he would get desperate and have to steal off another traveler. And therefore, he's like, I'm going back for those jugs. That's one layer, again, a more simple understanding of... Uh, of this this passage, but to take you a little bit a little bit deeper, um, number of commentaries explain as follows, and it's, it's, it, it, as early as the Arizal, the great Kabbalist from the 16th century, explains this way that a, the reason why a righteous person their possessions are so dear to them is because a tzaddik, someone who is righteous, recognizes that whatever they have was given to them by God for the purpose of serving God, 
for the purpose of being used for that person to fulfill their specific mission in this world. And if God ordained that Yaakov should have these jugs, then that, that means that these would be a part of Yaakov's mission in serving God. And they're essential. So otherwise, why does he have them? And therefore, and therefore, it's important to Yaakov to go back and, and retrieve them. Now, that's only because he doesn't steal. We wouldn't say something that somebody steals is, you know, was destined and given to them by God. That's a person taking their free will, which we all have, and, uh, and abusing it to come on, you know, to, to possess more than what they are supposed to have. That is, if they, that, that's, that's stolen goods. It's not meant to be mine. It's not meant for my mission if I steal it. But if it's something that came to me through honest, honest means, then it's something that is important that I have for my mission, that I'm, I should use it somehow in the service of God. Now, we're here to take the physical, elevate it, to use everything that we have somehow in the service of God. Now, sometimes it's to make ourselves healthier, happier so that we can serve God. But, but you know, it, it's really ideally meant to be, to be used with that, with that in mind. Anything that we have is, is, should, is meant to be channeled in some way to the service of God, either for our, for our, our own uh, spiritual, emotional, uh, physical health so that we can serve God, or to then be used actually in chesed, kindness, tzedakah, charity, or other, other means. So Yaakov recognizes this. If I have it, then it is then I have it for a reason. And therefore, it's important to him. He feels that he should go back for those, those jugs, even though they seem like such a simple thing, you know, they're not, they're not so valuable. He still feels that he should go back for them. And that comes from a recognition that whatever we have, we have because God ordained that we should have it. To give a little uh, analogy, a, uh, you know, there's a, imagine a person, he's very poor. He wants to, he wants to do the mitzvot. He wants to, to fulfill the commandments, but he just, he doesn't have what he needs to do so. And, uh, and he, he prays and he, he begs God. And one of the things that he would like to do is to be able to wash his hands, right? Like we wash before we eat bread but he doesn't have a, a cup to wash with. And one night he has a dream. And, uh, and in the dream, God comes to him and God says, I'm going to give you, since you want to do the mitzvot, you want to fulfill the commandment so badly, I'm going to give you a washing cup to wash with. And he wakes up in the morning and lo and behold, right there next to his bed is this pewter washing cup. And he's so elated, he's so excited. It's a gift from God, this cup. Well, the guy's life from that point on starts to turn around somehow. And he becomes very, very wealthy. And uh, he amasses much wealth. And he has now beautiful furniture, ornate, imported, the nicest stuff in the world. And uh, he's actually now, he's busting out of his home. It's time to move. And uh, he hires a moving company. And the movers come and they pack everything up and they bring it to his new mansion. 
and they start to unload everything. And he's looking through, he's looking through all the beautiful furniture and the beautiful gold and silver, uh, you know, vessels, everything that he has. And he's looking for his pewter, his old pewter washing cup, and he can't find it. And he's, he, he says, he asked the movers, did you, did you find the, the washing cup? And they say, oh, that, that old thing. Yeah, we didn't think that you wanted anymore. You know, we left it at the old house. And he rushes back to the old house to retrieve his pewter washing cup. And, and, he, and they, they, the, the movers are like so surprised. Why is this so important to you? Why do you care so much about it? So he says, you don't understand. This cup was given to me directly from God. You know, that's why it's so important to me. I wouldn't go anywhere without it. This is so, even though it's not nearly as valuable as these other possessions, the, the fancy furniture and the, and the gold and silver and everything that I have, but it's so important to me. So that's the, that's the, the parable, the analogy. So what's the, what do we see from this? So a tzaddik, someone who's righteous, recognizes that that's the case for everything. Everything that we have can be viewed in that way. Everything that we have is a gift directly from God. And God says, I'm giving this to you because I want you to do something positive with it. I want you to use this for, for no, in my service, to make the world a better place, to, to do mitzvot, to perform good deeds. And, uh, and, and, and if we view every possession that we have that way, then it becomes much more much more valuable to us. And Yaakov views it this way. And therefore, even for the smallest jugs, you know, simple, simple jugs, he's willing to go back and get them. Now, um, again, that's only true for possessions that come to us honestly. If they come to us through, through, you know, through, if they're stolen, so then we don't say, oh, this was ordained for me. And no, that was somebody using, abusing their free will to come to come uh, to come to uh, to to come to possess things that they weren't supposed to have. So uh, so that's what the Talmud is saying that uh, the the possessions of the righteous are are, are very dear to them. Um, and why? Because they don't steal. Because the, and therefore all their possessions are theirs. They recognize they're all meant for them. It was ordained that they should be theirs to be used in the service of God. Now we still have to explain though the line about more dear than their bodies, because we didn't quite explain that. We've explained that why the possessions of the righteous are very dear, because they're used in the service of God. But the way that the Talmud says is even more dear than their bodies. Well, their bodies are also used in the service of God, right? We, we need our bodies to serve God. So wh why, why is it expressed that way, that they're even more dear than their bodies? So I'm going to offer two explanations. Um, the second one I like better than the first one, but we'll, we'll, we'll say both. They're both good. Um, the first is from Reb Chaim Friedlander. And, uh, and he explained, actually, based on a story. He's, he's quoted a story that involved the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, the, the great author of many, many, uh, many important works. And, uh, and, Pre, he lived pre-war. He died in 1933 in, in Raden, and uh, was one of the one of the leaders of that generation. And uh, he had a yeshiva in Raden, and amongst his students were some of the greats that to follow him. One was Rabbi Yosef Kahanemir, 
who was known as the Panovich Rav. He was the Rav, the rabbi in the city of Panovich, I think. And eventually, after escaping the war, he started the Panovich Yeshiva in B'nai Brak in Israel, which is one of the largest yeshivas in Israel. And, uh, and he studied under the Chavetz Chaim in, in Raden. And he studied with another great Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman. Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman went on to be his, have lead a yeshiva of his own in, in Kamenitz, Poland. Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman actually was in America in 1939, I think, when the war was breaking out. And he decided, knowing full well that he was going right back into the fire, to go back to Europe to be with his students. Um, and he said, "We're you know wherever whatever happens to my students happens to, to me." And Rabbi Wasserman actually perished in the Holocaust along with his students. But he made that decision to to go back. But his also his his writings are are we still have and and were you know a tremendous contribution. So anyway, so so Rabbi Wasserman and Rabbi Kahanaman were studying in the yeshiva of the Chavetz Chaim, and they uh, they were looking for a certain book they needed, and they didn't have it in the yeshiva, but they knew that in one of the Chavetz Chaim's great works, the Mishnah Brura, his commentary on the Code of Jewish Law, he would quote from this book frequently. So they figured that if he quotes it, he must own it. He must have a copy of the book. So they asked him if he has a copy of the certain safer, the certain book that they needed to look something up in. And to their surprise, the Chavetz Chaim said, actually, I don't have it. So they said, well, how did you quote it so much in your, in, your, in, your, in your work? He said, well, I borrowed it. And then the Chavetz Chaim said something that was uh, somewhat confusing to them, but he said that... Uh, I'm not sorry about this, the, the, the books that I don't have. I'm sorry about the books that I do have. So what did he mean by that? So he explained that instead of having the books in my head, I have the books on my shelf. Meaning any book that I own, I had to get through putting in time to earn money to then go and buy the book. Well, during that time that I was working to earn the money to buy the book, I could have learned a different book and had it in my head. So instead, I have a book on my shelf instead of having it in my head. That was what he told them. And, uh, but what he was trying to, to bring out was the value of every, every moment. You know, owning something, you know, they say uh, time is money, right? So, uh, so yeah, time is money, but, but actually, you know, money is time, meaning anything that he owns took him time. And if it took him time to earn money, that means that was time lost from spiritual pursuits, from studying Torah, from mastering Torah, which he did quite well, you know, mind you, but, uh, but, but, but time so, so, you know, people say time is money. No, money is time. To earn money takes time. And that's time that could be spent on other things. And therefore, whatever we earned with that time should be extremely valuable to us and, should be, and, and we should make sure that it should be used in the service of God. And that's what Rabbi Chaim Freelander says is what is the intent over here of this passage in the Talmud. That the... Uh, 
the the the, the possessions of the righteous are more dear to them than their bodies in that our possessions came to us through investment of time investment of time that could have been used in other spiritual pursuits that means we have to use those uh those possessions to, to for spiritual pursuits for our to, to achieve our mission our bodies you know there's time spent on that also but but not in the we don't look at it in the same way we don't we didn't acquire our bodies through time investment so so that's 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 according to him what it means what it's saying is that for the for the righteous their uh their 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 time or their uh their possessions are more valuable than their bodies in that they know that there was an investment of time and that time is very dear that time is very valuable that time had should be used in pursuing our mission pursuing our goals and uh and therefore whatever is is derived from that time the possessions that are derived from that time should be channeled towards service of god that's how he explained it now an, an alternative explanation is actually a little bit simpler um and speaks to the words very well and that is the reason why for a righteous person their body or their possessions are more valuable than their bodies, what it means is as follows. A person who is all about material pursuits, about pleasure in this world, physical pleasure, material pleasure. So, so the reason why they acquire possessions is in order to derive pleasure from them, for to serve their bodies, to serve their good for their body. And so every time that we wanna earn money or acquire possessions, we have to make a calculation. Is this going to be a benefit to my, is this going to bring pleasure to my body? Is it worth the cost, the, the, you know, the effort to do this? Will it ultimately overall bring pleasure to me? Or is it not worth the effort because the effort, the strain, the pain that I have to go through to acquire these possessions is, is not worth the benefit that it will bring me. So that's the calculation that somebody makes if they're looking for pleasure from their possessions. If they're looking for material gain, if they're looking for physical pleasure, so then, and, and the purpose of their possessions is to serve themselves. So then the value of their possessions, that is their value, is whether they will, whether they will bring me pleasure. But if I have to walk all the way, you know, back across a river, to go get a couple of jugs of oil or water, whatever it is, these jugs, it's not worth it. That's not going to, the, the little pleasure that it will bring to my body once I get it is not worth the effort, the pain that I have to go through to get it. So, so to somebody who is, who is not righteous, somebody who is, some, who is more about the material gain, so then they, their, their body is more valuable than their possessions in that the possessions are there just to serve their body. And therefore, if, the, if, if, if going back to get the possessions is, 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 takes effort and strain, it's like it's not worth it. It's like I don't go back. However, if somebody recognizes, like we're describing, that the purpose of our possessions are not to service ourselves, they're not just to bring ourselves pleasure, but they're to help us serve God. And to achieve our mission, our purpose, so then I don't weigh the effort of going back based on, is it worth it for me? Is it worth the effort? Is it going to bring me pleasure overall 
to go back and get these. I go back and get them because I, under, I recognize that these are necessary for me. They've been ordained. They've been given to me in order to serve God. And therefore, I should go back and get them no matter what the effort involved. And that's what it means. What it says, this is an explanation of Rabbi David Cohen. When it says that one should go back, that, excuse me, when it says that the possessions of the righteous are more dear than their bodies, doesn't mean that literally that, that, that it's more valuable than our bodies. What it means is that it's more dear than the, than the effort and the pain that we might have to go through to acquire those possessions to, or to get back those possessions, meaning it's worth the investment. It's worth it for Yaakov to go back, even though overall the, 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 the pleasure versus effort, you know, it's not really worth it. But that's if he's doing it for himself, it's not worth it. Somebody who's just looking for pleasure isn't going to go back for those jugs. But somebody who's looking to use them in the service of God, that's the, the, their possessions are more valuable than the pain that they're going to afflict on their bodies and the, 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 the effort that it's going to take to go get them. The possessions are more valuable because those possessions are going to be used in the service of God. That's what, Yaakov, that's what this, this passage is saying. When it says Yaakov goes back to get these small jugs, from here, we, we, it's derived that the possessions of the righteous are dearer than their bodies. It means the righteous recognize that these possessions are granted to them to be used in the service of God. And therefore, even if it's a little extra effort and not really worth it in terms of my own pleasure to go back and get them, but it's not about me. It's about using these to serve God and therefore it's worth the effort. Okay, now what does this have to do with Hanukkah? The last 10 minutes. So it seems to have very little to do with Hanukkah. But if you think about it, you'll find a connection. The connection is the jug, right? We know that the miracle of Hanukkah, one of the miracles of Hanukkah, revolves around a jug of oil. The Greeks ransack the Beis Hamikdash, the temple. They defile all the oils that are used to light the menorah when the when the righteous Kohanim, the Maccabees, the Hashmonaim, they come back into the temple and they want to light the menorah, they can't find any oil. And finally, after searching all over, they find one jug of oil that still is, has the seal of the high priest, and they're able to use that jug of oil to light the menorah. And the miracle occurs. It lasts eight days and eight nights. So, uh, so. So the, the truth is that the Midrash connects that miracle to this episode with Yaakov. The Midrash, there's a Midrash that's it's actually very vague. There's a Midrash that says that, uh, that we find that God said to Yaakov, to Jacob, you sacrificed yourself for a small jug for me. I myself am going to repay your descendants with a small jug. That being the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, that I will make a miracle for them with a jug. That's what the Midrash says. And what is this Midrash referring to? Where does Yaakov sacrifice himself for a small jug? The commentaries suggest it's talking about what we are talking about this evening. When Yaakov goes back for a small jug, for a jug, jugs, he goes back for those jugs. So he sacrifices himself to go and do that. And uh and uh, that, and he he uh, 
And as a result of that, his, his descendants also, God will, um, will bring about a miracle for them with the jug of oil. Now, what did Yaakov actually do with this jug? What did he do? What, like we said, so we said before, maybe it was water. Rebbein says it was water. He was looking for water for, the, for, the, for his children. He wanted to make sure they have water. It, later in, in the same Torah portion, we find that Yaakov returns to a place that he had been before. We hear he had built a monument, and there he pours oil as an offering to God. The mid the, the, the commentaries, some commentaries understand that that's what Yaakov you did with this oil, with these jugs. He went back, it wasn't water, it was oil. He went back for these jugs of oil. He understood that these the reason if he had oil, he was meant to use it in the service of God. And therefore he put in extra effort to go back and get it because he knew if God gave it to me, it's part of my mission. I should use it in the service of God. Even if it's a bit of a sacrifice to go back, it's an effort, but serving God is more dear to me than, my, than, than the effort, more dear to me than my body. And he goes back and he retrieves those jugs of oil. And, uh, and later we find that he pours oil libation as an offering to God, perhaps from that very same oil. And as a result of this, the, his descendants merit the miracle of the oil. I think the connection goes a little bit deeper. The Bach, Rabbi Yoel Circus, asks, why is it that when it comes to Purim, you know, Purim and Hanukkah are both rabbinic holidays, but they're quite different, obviously. But when it comes to Purim, Purim actually has four mitzvos, four commandments on the day of Purim. One of them is to eat a feast. Person is supposed to eat a Purim meal. Now on Hanukkah, there's no commandment to eat a meal. There's customs. It's a nice thing to do to have you know Hanukkah parties and celebrations and meals, but but there's no actual daily mitzvah that the rabbis ordained that you have to eat a meal. You have to light the menorah. That was the only mitzvah, and and you have to recite halal. You praise God, thank God, but you don't uh, you don't uh, eat a meal. Why? Why is there on Purim? There's a mitzvah from the rabbis to eat a meal, but on Hanukkah, there is no mitzvah. So Rabbi Yoel Circus explains, he's a, I guess, a 17th century uh, commentator. He says that Purim and Hanukkah were very different. On Purim, Haman wanted to, well, let's go back a step. Purim, the sin that the Jewish people performed was to benefit and to eat from the feast that Ahasuerus made. They sinned with their bodies. They sinned in a physical way. And therefore, the punishment was going to be their bodies. Haman wanted to wipe out their bodies, wipe them off the face of the earth. And God saved us. And therefore, we celebrate with our bodies. We celebrate with the meal. We celebrate with food. That's Purim. But Hanukkah was very different. Hanukkah, he says, why? what, what sin did the Jewish people commit during the times of Hanukkah, says Rabbi Yoel Circus, they were weak in their service of God in the temple. They were not serving God in the right way in the temple during that period. And therefore, God took away their ability to serve in the temple. And therefore, the Greeks took over the temple. They stopped them from bringing the offerings. They stopped them from lighting the menorah. They defiled it. So what did it take to... Uh, you know, if they were weak, they were lazy, they were, they, they were not approaching 
service in the temple with the right amount of passion and commitment. So what did it take to, you know, to, to atone for that? It took passion and commitment. It took the, that uh, they, the, it took repentance to be, to, to be willing to sacrifice themselves, to be willing to, to put in great effort to sacrifice their bodies for the sake of the service in the temple. And that's what they did when they were fighting the Greeks. They wanted to get back, you know, among other things, but they wanted to get back service in the temple. And that's and and the, and it was led by really the priests, the Hashmonaim, the the the, uh, the Maccabees were were Kohanim, they were priests, and uh, and they led the the attack. The, the service in the temple is the ultimate um, expression of taking our, you know. In many ways, we use our possessions to serve God, but I think that that, in a certain sense, is the ultimate expression of that, of taking the physical and using it directly in the service of God. They were weak in that. They didn't recognize the value of the possessions, of the, the, of the, of the offerings they could bring, of the oil that they could light in the menorah. They were weak in that, and therefore, God took it away from them. They strengthened themselves in that. They rededicated themselves to that. And, and God rewarded them with a victory and reclaiming the temple. So I think it's not just, oh, you know, a jug of oil that, that Yaakov went back for, a jug of oil here, you know, jug of oil, jug of oil, let's, let's, let's make the connection. But it, to me, it runs even deeper. That Yaakov went back, he sacrificed himself to go back for that jug of oil, according to these commentaries, to use that jug of oil as an offering. Because he understood, I have it for a purpose. What I have is given to me for a purpose. It's more valuable to me than the effort that's involved. To use that, to channel that in service of God is more important than the effort involved. I'm willing to, 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 to pay myself, to go to great lengths, to get that jug of oil, to later be able to use it for a purpose. Because if I have it, if God gave it to me, he must want me to use it in his service. And, and that's what Yaakov does. He goes back and gets it, and eventually he does use it as a libation in service of God. And the same thing happens on Hanukkah. On Hanukkah, the, uh, they, they, at first they didn't recognize that the importance of, of, of uh, taking those possessions, taking those things and, and channeling them in the service of God. They were weak in their temple service. They were lax and lazy perhaps, but eventually they repented. They turned that around. And, uh, and they showed a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to put in that effort, even at risk to their lives, and uh, to be able to take the, the possessions that God granted us and, uh, and, and channel them in the service of God. They were desperate to, to get back the temple service. And, uh, and, and God says, oh, I remember your, father, your, your ancestor, Yaakov, did the same thing. He sacrificed himself to get this jug of oil and, and you are sacrificing yourselves as well. I will reward you with the jug of oil that you'll be able to use in lighting the menorah. You put in the effort. I will reward you for your efforts. And, uh, and indeed they, uh, they were rewarded and we still celebrate that until today. Um, so that's perhaps another lesson of Hanukkah is the ability to take the physical possessions to take uh, that which we have and uh, and dedicate it in, in the service of God, we take we take our oil and uh, and we use it for a mitzvah. We use it for for service of God. Everything that we have can be used in some way 
to fulfill our purpose and to, to serve to serve God. Happy Hanukkah. Thank <laughs> you.